Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount Plus. I'm in a period of emotional upheaval. Is that all the oh, I don't care crap? A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm gonna steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Fairmount Plus. Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. Hello, my dudes. Today, I want to talk about community, co-housing, all the many terms under the umbrella of communal, intentional living. But let me rewind. I often find myself on Zillow, as you do, searching for any house within my budget, and then I'll expand to include multifamily homes. Why not? Oh, a duplex. One unit would be the size I want, and the price of that half would be under budget. Okay, then who wants to buy a duplex? Because I don't want to be a landlord. But I could definitely get some friends or family to go in on it with us. Oh my god, it would be so much fun to have them right next door. We could hang out anytime. We could share the backyard. I have become obsessed with this idea, this dream. And when I float the idea to friends, they're all like, yeah, you know, they go along with it for a bit. But then they're like, no, we couldn't really do that. It's too much commitment. Wouldn't it be weird to tie a mortgage into our friendship? What if we got sick of each other? You know, we want our own privacy, our own space. Here in the US especially, we are conditioned to believe that living a fully independent life is the ideal. Live on your own, buy a single family house someday. And hey, I do crave that stability, the permanence that can come with owning a home. It would be nice to fully decorate and paint, not have to worry about my rent going up every year. But aside from that, I envision this and it's like, I already work by myself from home. I only hang out with my dog most of the day until my husband's done with work. My friends don't live close enough nearby. We have to make plans weeks in advance. Just owning the house we live in won't solve any of those problems. There's been so much conversation recently about the loneliness epidemic or the friendship recession, which is absolutely tied to the issue of proximity. It is so much easier to meet people, make friends, and actually maintain those relationships when you're nearby. I am lucky to have a lot of great people in my life, but I do feel disconnected and lonely a lot of the time because so many of them are too far away. I want to live closer to my friends, and I don't mean within like a 30-minute drive. No, I want my loved ones within walking distance. I crave those casual, spontaneous moments. Want to come have coffee on my porch? Want to run a few errands together? I have personally spent so much time reading and researching various options, not even for this video, but because I actually want to pursue one of these arrangements someday. Maybe we will buy a duplex with some friends, or build on a bunch of land with extended family, or perhaps we'll create an entire co-housing cooperative, a low-waste, democratically-run village. You may be thinking, yeah, sounds nice, but that's totally unrealistic. Or you have no desire to live that close to so many people, and these arrangements sound like a nightmare to you, which 
That's totally fair. Of course, I know, living with or very close to other people is never easy. It requires communication, boundaries. You've got to agree on some kind of structure of how things will run, how you'll split responsibilities and costs. But there are potentially unlimited configurations depending on your needs and preferences. And I'm going to share some cool examples I found throughout this video. But today, I just want to invite us to dream. Consider what your ideal living situation would be. And once you have an idea, please share it in the comments because I would love to read it. All right, let's get into it. The dominant American narrative, the circular pipeline of how we're supposed to live, basically goes family, then roommates, sometime alone, then coupled, and back to family. Many of us have our first communal living experiences as young adults. This could be college dorms, roommates, and these are formative experiences. It can be chaotic and messy. If you're lucky, you'll have a great time with your roomies. But still, generally, this living arrangement is viewed as temporary. Roommates are a kind of necessary evil until you can afford to fly solo. Many dream of living alone for at least some time in their 20s, but not forever. Single life is expensive and can be lonely. But we're told the best life gets is to be partnered. The cost for rent and everything else are split in half. And of course, nothing is more important than being validated through a monogamous relationship, right? But some adults actually prefer living with roommates, which people see as shocking and confusing. It must be a lack of maturity, or maybe you're just really poor. You're 25 and still living with roommates? The horror. As Molly Savard wrote, in dominant US culture, there's an expectation of ascending from living with parents or roommates to living alone or with a spouse. We've been fed classist and racist notions of communal living as unhealthy, unproductive, and un-American. The combination of that stigma plus any early negative experiences we've had with roommates makes us believe communal living just isn't for us. But honestly, when I had roommates, I was young, dumb, and probably not a great roommate myself. Maybe we were too quick to judge. Perhaps we should consider giving co-living or co-housing a real shot. But before we continue, this portion of today's video is sponsored by Care Of. Care Of offers a curated set of products that are designed to work with research-backed ingredients and optimal doses. You can take their quiz and get personalized recommendations of which supplements fit your needs. I have my latest package here. I love the convenience of the vitamin packs, the film is compostable, and I like having my daily vitamins pre-sorted. I'm typically kind of out of sight, out of mind, so I find that I unintentionally ignore vitamin bottles, but I find that having this dispenser in my kitchen, right in my cabinet, helps to catch my attention and remind me to actually take them every day. What's my favorite vitamin right now? Good question. I've got to say D3. Since it's the winter, I'm getting way less sunlight, so having this supplement is crucial. Vitamin D3 helps your body absorb calcium, and it supports your bone health. Overall, though, my top health goal for 2024 is, as usual, to drink more water. I know it's basic, but I really struggle. And actually, Carob's app has a habit tracker, so I have water plus things like walking, getting outside, reading. I can track my habits and then log how I'm feeling. And over time, I can compare my results and adjust my routine as needed. It's nice to visually see like taking care of myself does make me feel better. Who knew? You know what? I'm taking good care of myself this year as we all should. So next time you're shopping for new vitamins or supplements, check out Care Of. You can get 50% off your first order with code TIFFERG. 
Now let's segue into the suburbs, the land of hyper-individualism and nuclear families. Finally, someday you graduate to the family lifestyle. This could mean a spouse, a partner, maybe some animal or human children. Let's be honest, the dink lifestyle, dual income, no kids, with all that extra money to spoil your pets with, it's kind of a dream. But when you become a family unit, you're not just living with someone, you have a life together. There is a sense of grounding and commitment. It feels more serious than a little old roommate. In US society, we highly value the heteronormative nuclear family. The classic American dream looks like a straight white couple with 2.5 kids, a mortgaged McMansion. I would say white picket fence, but more realistically, they just wanna be in a gated community. So all that being said, obviously I know not everyone wants that life. And even for those who do, it is unattainable for many. And even for those who achieve it, this life can actually be very limiting and lonely. Shout out to the desperate housewives. The nuclear family is isolating by design. Each role is distinct and separate, which discourages collaboration within and outside of the family. There's so much to be said about the gender dynamics and the unfair allocation of labor, but I would love to do an entire video on that someday, so stay tuned. I'm just baffled that each household, each family unit spends so much time and energy and money trying to balance all these tasks. So many of us are isolated in the same ways, doing the same work separately, earning money to buy the same fancy things all of our neighbors have, like an entire cul-de-sac of backyard pizza ovens and carpet cleaning machines. It just seems absurd, wasteful, and inefficient. Imagine if we could share some of these resources and maybe split the load of all these domestic tasks once in a while. Savard writes, if we didn't have to do everything ourselves, what freedom might we know? Why not create our own ever-expanding social safety net? Traditional structures of power aren't going to save us. And when we're not on our separate, self-reliant islands, when we have more robust, immediate support networks of people who may not share our surname, we're better able to help others in our communities and ourselves. Continuing on, you want to live closer to friends. Matei's article encourages friends who live in the same city to move within walking distance and campaign for others to do the same. What if I were neighbors with all my friends? Wouldn't it be great to have someone who could join me on a stroll at a moment's notice or to be able to drop by to cook dinner for a friend and her baby? How good would it be to have more spontaneous hangs instead of ones that have to be planned, scheduled, and most likely rescheduled weeks in advance? And I can relate to this because when I lived within the New York City boroughs. First of all, I always lived in different boroughs than my friends, so it was very far away. It's so frustrating to be like, we're so close, but so far. I wish you were just down the street. I wish we were all in one neighborhood at least. This Substack writer named Priya wrote about doing this exact thing. She convinced 22 of her friends to live within walking distance. She says, if anyone happens to move out, you just recruit somebody else to move into their spot. Your friends do the same, so your friends' friends become your friends, and suddenly you have this great interconnected network. Now, of course, this can work really well if you are already in a city with a lot of your friends and you have friends to recruit. But of course, it's not always this easy, especially if you don't already live nearby. Anne Helen Peterson has been writing a lot about this realm of friendship. So she wrote this newsletter about moving closer to friends using Matei's article as a jumping off point. For people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, in the thick of figuring out adulthood and family support systems and the setups that nurture them, why don't we do this? What is keeping us from the quasi-communes of our dreams? Peterson wrote a list of common reasons and roadblocks, such as, we're not socialized to prioritize friendship. Our friends are too scattered. The housing market, of course. Job lock. 
And number five, many states are not safe, especially states that are actively and legislatively hostile to marginalized people. And I wanted to share those reasons because I do think it's important to acknowledge, I know that this is not as simple as just move your whole life. Under capitalism, we are forced to focus more on our jobs and money than we otherwise would want to. So it's not always just as simple as choice. But again, this video is about dreams. So maybe let's suspend our disbelief for a bit. Also, we might actually want to reconsider our priorities. We might reach a point where things aren't working and we need to make big changes. If and when you do have some amount of agency, some wiggle room, why not use it? Matei writes, many people are prepared to move for a new job, to be with a romantic partner, or even just for an adventure. Moving closer to buddies should be no different. Friends are not incidental to a good life, they are essential to one. So why not shorten the distance between you and them? Finally, let's get into co-living, co-housing, communes. We need to define these terms before we continue. The umbrella term, I think, is intentional community, also sometimes known as a utopian community or cooperative community, basically a group of people choosing to live together with a common purpose. Here are a few types. Now, of course, a group or arrangement can utilize multiple of these labels. Co-living is multiple individuals sharing a dwelling. Co-housing supports neighborly connections, generally by incorporating both private homes and shared common facilities. Spiritual or religious, student co-ops, eco-villages organized around ecology and sustainability, and communes which share resources and typically income share. Again, throughout this video I've struggled to define things because some people use terms interchangeably and also like it just depends on every group. For example, in terms of like organization or financial structuring. You can rent, you can buy. These models can be for-profit, not-for-profit. It can be a co-op where you own shares of the entire property, or it can be more like a condo where you own your unit and then you pay community fees. Anything can happen. And from what I've read, ultimately, like the success or well-being of any community depends on how well it is run. Is there solid organization, great financial plans, transparency between everyone? If there is a hierarchical structure of like management or leadership, are they good leaders? In this video, I don't want to like over romanticize all of these ideas because of course, again, these communities can be poorly run, dysfunctional, toxic, or even full-blown cults. So always uh, approach with caution. <laughs> and before we continue, obviously I wanna to touch on like some of the, the risks and the benefits of co-living. A lot of people are hesitant to even consider this lifestyle because again, yeah, we want our own space. We don't wanna to have to rely on other people. We don't wanna share spaces. We're afraid of the conflict that might come with messes or disagreements. And again, as I mentioned in the intro, any kind of co-living definitely requires a lot more communication than your standard single household. Though, if you think about it, it's the same elements just on a slightly bigger scale. Some more people and different personalities to deal with, but the same practices. Communication, conflict resolution, compromise. Skills that I actually think most of us could use a lot more practice in, but we don't usually get the opportunity. I think co-living also requires a level of vulnerability, which scares people. A lot of people like to be fiercely independent because they don't wanna rely on anyone else. Maybe they've been let down before. They would rather just handle everything on their own to make sure it gets done. But putting that wall up, again, prevents you from all the joys and all the benefits of being vulnerable with other people, relying on other people, being relied on. As I've been thinking about what it means to actually be in community, 
it's still a work in progress in my mind. It's not just about proximity to others. It is about sharing, trust. It's a lot more complicated than living alone, but there is potentially so much more to gain. Savard wrote, as someone who prizes privacy and interdependence, I was taken by the concept of having one space with friends close by, all of us contributing skills and goods and relying on one another. Okay, so now I wanna share some joyful examples of co-living. Again, I talked about roommates being seen as this necessary evil within capitalism in order to afford life, but it is important to make the distinction between an active choice to live with others versus the necessity. Many people do not desire to live alone. First, platonic life partners. This term has been on the rise, you know, shout out to the ace and arrow folks or others who just don't want to live with a romantic or sexual partner. They wanna live with a platonic partner. You share a life, you share decisions. You may share finances to some extent. A great example I found are momunes. Deborah Kamen wrote, all over the world, women are joining forces under one roof, sharing the load of childcare and household bills through the age old power of sisterhood. The living arrangement isn't novel. Mothers, particularly those in non-white communities have been house sharing for centuries. This is part of the larger trend of parents stretching traditional boundaries of what a family is and taking matters into their own hands to find creative solutions solutions. Specifically in that context, again, typically single moms are just expected to either suffer on their own or remarry, find a new partner, find a new spouse to rely on, and then get back in that role of mother within a nuclear family. And I think a lot of the mothers in these momunes now feel this new sense of empowerment to realize they don't have to do it alone and that maybe life can be better than ever with the help of fellow moms who get it. Within the co-living sphere, I have also found a lot of examples of queer houses. Of course, historically, queer folks have often banded together, creating strong community spaces. And the same goes for other marginalized groups. I read this article a few years back. It's by P.E. Moskowitz. They wrote about living in this accidental trans enclave in East Williamsburg. The remarkable thing about our shitty little building is not that we made a new rad trans collective in the middle of a pandemic. The remarkable thing, the really almost unheard of thing, is that we found 12 people who like each other enough to live together. I highly recommend reading that whole article. I found it really lovely and the photography is beautiful. Molly Savard, who I've already been quoting, wrote, I wanna start a queer commune. No, I'm not joking. I got my first glimpse of communal living in college in a community with other queer students. They showed me a configuration that felt more loving, more normal than the purported ideal of a suburban nuclear family. Particularly appealing about these spaces was their foundation of queer ethics. The residents' politics resisted assimilation and oppression and were rooted in inclusive feminism. The houses were an experiment in mutual aid, honest communication, and non-punitive measures for addressing harm. Again, that goes back to the point of an intentional community. It's not just surface-level shared identities. It's a depth of understanding and the commitment to work together, to cooperate. I wanna contrast that kind of co-living with multi-generational living. This is also in contrast to the standard nuclear family. Now, of course, multi-generational living is already very normalized, especially in immigrant communities, families of color, and collectivist cultures all around the world, whereas American culture tends to be more individualistic. For many intergenerational households, shared resources offer lifelong support to everyone in the family. That assurance of care, especially in the US, 
is rare because we don't have a social safety net, especially in terms of the elder care crisis, which is terrifying. More and more adults are worried about their aging parents. Many elderly have no retirement savings, and even if you do, just a few years in assisted living facilities can wipe that out. There's this sandwich generation right now who may have kids of their own, but they're also being tasked with bringing their own parents back into their home. Or you're child-free and trying to establish yourself your own life, and again, you're hit with that responsibility of taking care of one or two or more relatives. And in this section, I definitely don't mean to imply that intergenerational living is perfect. I did a survey, which I am not actually referencing a lot in this video, but I think I'm gonna do a second channel video and go through all the results if you wanna hear. But many survey respondents were raised in intergenerational households and they said it was toxic and unhealthy for their family, which can be due to any number of things, you know, too many people in too small of a space or just general dysfunctional family dynamics. And I have totally been there. So a lot of them said, that no, they would never want to have that kind of situation again because it didn't work well with their family. But regardless, for many families, some kind of multi-generational arrangement is a necessity, but they can always look different. I loved this example that I found of a really mutually beneficial agreement. There's this website called CoBuy that gives advice about how to co-buy a house. And I was like, yeah, tell me. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. We were kind of able to all get what we want by my mom contributing all the down payment and then my husband and I were covering the mortgage. So my mom is retired without a mortgage and we uh, were able to buy a house, uh, get into the real estate market way sooner than we would have been able to otherwise. I feel like this is a perfect deal. If that works out for you, that is awesome. Personally, I've dreamt of the ADU solution, stands for Accessory Dwelling Unit. These have been increasingly popular because a lot of states are incentivizing people to build them in order to provide more affordable housing units, though often the rents end up very pricey anyway. A lot of people rent them out to tenants to help cover the costs or to add, you know, passive income. And I do understand needing to offset the costs because these can be pretty expensive to build, you know, anywhere from 50, 75,000 up into the six figures. And in my imaginary scenario, when I've dreamt of doing this, if I had a house with a yard big enough to build an ADU, I think I'm like, okay, if my parents wanted to move in or another family member, maybe they move in, I'd charge them like something like very small, but maybe over time would help chip away at the, the cost to build it. I would not want to profit from it personally, but it would be nice to help offset the cost a little. But yes, this dream for me of being able to build like a one bedroom apartment or a great studio in my backyard 
backyard or a really nice basement suite. These can be such a great option for anyone who wants their own space but doesn't want to be entirely on their own, such as if you're disabled and you can't live fully independently. There's still a level of support in being nearby, but you do get your own space. There is something to be said for like your own entry, not having shared walls, having even like a few feet of distance away from the main family house. I'm still dreaming of it. Maybe, maybe part of it is also when I was like 18, I was obsessed with tiny homes. So maybe the ADU in my mind is just a continuation of my tiny home obsession. I don't know. Now moving into more of the co-housing realm, sometimes buying a duplex or another multifamily property actually works out to be cheaper than buying individual houses if you have people who can go in on the purchase with you, which also I know it's again, a privilege to yourself have a bit of money and have people who are also in a position to do that. But I think buy a duplex together is like an entry level form of co-housing. You are technically under one roof, but it's not co-living because you have separate units. You get all the benefits of living close together, but within your own own private space. I've seen a lot of examples from the New York Times real estate section. Like in this example, the couple and their friend each had pretty much $750,000 budgets, but they couldn't find what they wanted in single family homes. But combined, they could buy a great two family home with everything they wanted in each separate unit. Again, I have actually become obsessed with this idea. I have become obsessed with neighborhoods that have all kinds of different types of multifamily houses. If I see a duplex, a triplex, a quadplex, I'm so excited. And a lot of that comes from so many of the headache inducing zoning limitations in the US, like the prioritization of single family homes and that it's often illegal to build anything else. It drives me mad. So yes, when I see a neighborhood with a bunch of mixed types of housing and mixed use zones, Zoning, my God. And if it's in a 15 minute city, I'm moving in. Anyway, I'm getting too excited. <laughs> but still you might be saying, okay, but buying a duplex with like my friend, that's gonna be really complicated financially and legally. Oh God, what, what are you gonna do? You just drop a little contract. You drop an agreement and you figure out everything. Deborah Common wrote, three worked with a lawyer to create a tenancy in common agreement, which covers scenarios like one party wanting to sell and how the household costs will be handled. They all pledged not to offer their units as Airbnbs. And if one of them had to temporarily move out and sublet, the others would get a vote on the new housemate. Another one of my favorite examples is Madeline Pendleton, one of my favorite TikTokers. They have told the story many times that they bought a duplex with their partner and a friend as low income buyers in Los Angeles. They had totally thought that home ownership was like impossible, but then they had looked at their options to see like what kind of support or programs they might be eligible for. And now they talk about how their mortgage payment is way more affordable than rent, even just a few years later. And it's stable. They know that they will probably always be able to afford that housing payment. And that's a very comforting thing. Now you may be saying, oh, the answer to solving the loneliness crisis is just buying a house with a friend. I can't afford a house at all. I get that. Is simply buying real estate the answer? No, of course not. And Helen Peterson wrote, Americans are conditioned to think of shopping, aka buying things, as the most efficient way to solve a problem. The best solution to the overarching problem of loneliness and the desire for more community and mutual care is to buy a different house. My first inclination is to critique this sort of real estate forward solution. Private property, at least as we've currently arranged it, is an engine for inequality. Our hunger for it has made us worse stewards of the world and less responsible to one another. But I wanna hold that critique alongside the pressing, irrepressible hunger for community and intimacy, the sort that feels impossible unless something changes with where and how you live. 
And finally, I want to talk about co-housing communities, housing cooperatives. These co-housing communities often strive to be environmentally friendly. They want to cut down on waste, have some green energy. Yeah, so we have people of all ages living here. We mm -hmm. have newborn babies, and then we have people in their 80s. We try to create a really cross-generational, very inclusive environment here. Mm -hmm. So. It's all about earth-friendly living. They are self-governing democratically, and typically they aim to be socially progressive. Here's an example from the community that claims to be the first co-housing community in the world, in Denmark. Communal meals are a staple at Setedema, where 71 people live in 28 houses, clustered around shared recreational and outdoor spaces. Residents are expected to clean shared areas and take turns tending the grounds. Everyone shares resources like laundry facilities, outdoor tools, and play equipment. I think that just sounds so lovely, like to have your own space, but have the chance to share meals, get to know your neighbors, like really know who's around you. It's so funny because it feels so foreign to me. Like I've never really been in this kind of situation. Again, the closest thing was dorms, but that's not, I didn't have that kind of community. I was just like, I live in a building with a lot of students. Now you might've watched that video and gone, okay, cool, sounds good, but that's a lot of white people. And it is true from my research, I've seen that typically the people who are interested in and tend to found these co-housing communities, the demographics seem to be white, middle-class, educated, liberals. Co-housing tends to be based on ideals and histories of communities of color and especially the values of indigenous communities. So it's not that co-housing, the concept is uniquely suited to white people. It's more that, as Arbel writes, co-housing is culturally framed as a white space. The founding members of a co-housing community establish what the community is, what it looks like, and who it serves. So even if they genuinely do have goals of being more diverse and inclusive, these groups typically aren't that inviting to people of color because of the overwhelming whiteness and homogeneity. Cynthia Detmer wrote, quoting Lena Buffington, there is a rich history of intentional communities developed by people of color. African-American farmers were the first to use land trusts in the South. The Black Panthers created a variety of communal housing groups. The MOVE activist community in Philadelphia lived communally. Most of these efforts, she says, were systematically destroyed by the white establishment, but all were engaged in social justice work. So again, similar to that point I quoted from Molly Savard earlier about the queer house and the queer values, the queer ethics, I think the same point stands here. It's not just about the physical makeup of the residents. That is not what makes a community inviting and truly inclusive. It is about the values that are reflected by the residents. And again, in who founds it? What is the foundation of this group? This is a town that actually will be run by and inspired by women. It was important for the leadership to be women because we need to set a different type of precedent. The goal for the Freedom Georgia Initiative is to create generational wealth, to create a safe haven, a place where we can feel like we can thrive, where we can feel like we can be authentically uh, black, to be able to live our best life. I still have a lot more research to do. I was just gonna say, if I'm gonna start my own co-housing community, like a lot of these groups have workshops and like conventions for people who are interested in this. So I would recommend looking into that. There's a group called the People of Color Sustainable Housing Network that's based in the Bay Area. It's currently led by four women of color. This is their vision. We are committed to creating an entire ecosystem of POC-centered co-housing, cooperative housing, and intentional communities that are ecologically, emotionally, spiritually, and culturally regenerative spaces. 
there are a lot of interconnected issues here. And I think the work that groups like this are doing is so incredible and so valuable. Okay, so final thoughts. Ultimately, I've been researching all of this and I, I felt compelled to make this video because I love these ideas. I love thinking outside of just the, the traditional norms when it comes to housing or what family is or what community is. And this is probably still the tip of the iceberg. I've been thinking a lot about my own life and what I want in the future and, and what I envision. I am a woman, I am married to a man, and I just don't wanna fall into that heteronormative nuclear family trap. I think we all just have so much more potential, like I have more potential to give, not just to my own family unit, to my hopefully future kids. I want to have a bigger purpose. I wanna feel more connected to people. I want to offer what I can. I want the joy and even the challenges that come along with being more closely tied together with people. So I will continue looking at Zillow, looking at all my options. We would be lucky if we could buy any home, but I will always dream of creating this community and trying to entice and recruit my loved ones to come a little closer, move a little closer, come down the street, same city, same neighborhood. Anything would be great. I have one final quote from this Slingshot Collective piece. I want to offer alternatives that aren't just about survival and hardship, but offer options for more joy, more community with others, and a more meaningful existence. This isn't because I'm denying the many crises in the world or trying to change the subject. Rather, my hunch is that the types of changes we so desperately need will require more meaningful, connected, and joyful lives. We can't survive without them. Thank you so much for watching this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And also please, if you haven't seen my last video, please watch it. It's about the working conditions of reality TV, the manipulation, the exploitation, sleep deprivation. And then I talk about, you know, the changes that might be coming to the industry and uh, a bit of a reckoning that is going on right now. And thanks again to Kerov for sponsoring today's video. Don't forget, you can get 50% off your first order at Kerov with my code TIFFERG. Click the link in the description. Okay, that is all. Thank you so much for watching this and stay tuned for future internet analysis videos. Okay, thanks, bye.